welcome to the DNS podcast, Mr. Sean Aksaita. Good morning and thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure at the DNS podcast. Why did you choose law as a profession? Well, I chose law as a profession because I was really interested in law and it's one of the few options that you have after graduation from an intellectual standpoint. Like, you know, in India, after you graduate, typically you've either done your BCom or your science or whichever background you come from. You know, you don't have a ton of other options other than doing an MBA or a chartered accountancy course, which you could take up as an alternative. So law is one of the really uh, like intellectual pursuits which is available after graduation and that's an attractive option. So that's why I chose to do law. Interesting. What aspect of being a lawyer interests you the most? The adversarial aspect where you have to uh, advocate for your client. So at any point of time in law, right there's sort of two aspects to it either you're making contracts and you're sitting in the office 24 hours a day and you're doing compliance work for some government department or you're going to court and you're fighting in court for your client so what really interests me is the adversarial aspect of law where you know most people would shy away from disputes they don't want to really get into an argument or get into a fight or sort of try to resolve a situation where there is conflict and that is really what interests me the most because i don't get affected with conflict i am sort of naturally wired to deal with conflict in a positive way to try to get a positive outcome for everyone associated in that conflict so that's why uh, like that's what really interests me and that's why I took up law and that's why I like to do uh, conflict resolution in what I do. Right. So when you say talk about uh, fighting for your client, arbitrary law, when you're talking about this, what is the one particular aspect which is really, really you're passionate about? So getting the best outcome and fighting to, you know, our sort of ethical codes talk about zealous advocacy. And, uh, you know, there have been certain instances where clients uh, conduct has been such that no lawyer would like to have that kind of a client. Right. right? Where, for example, uh, say someone is a child molester or a murderer or something of that sort. So if you open textbooks of law, right, you'll read about such examples where lawyers have defended even such people and the lawyers have been sometimes sent to jail. In some countries where lawyers have been told, look, if you do this or if you continue to defend your client in this manner, then we will put you in jail. And there have been instances where lawyers have gone to jail just to defend their client as a matter of advocacy for your client. So it's a very uh, inspirational way in which uh, you have to approach that and you have to sort of be there for your client because he's expecting the best from you. True. So zealous advocacy is extremely important as a lawyer and zealously advocating for your client, being the mouthpiece for someone who's not able to understand the situation that he is in and who's not able to correctly put out what he has to say. Right. So that is exactly what 
uh, advocacy is all about where you advocate for someone and that advocacy does not end in the courtroom it continues even outside of the courtroom right and you have to continue to push and push and push for your client that is what you know advocacy and uh, dispute resolution is all about because disputes arise all the time true and everywhere you look you know you're going to find conflict and disputes it may be a small thing it may not result in a litigation or it may not result in something that goes to court but resolving disputes in a effective and uh, cost effective i would say in a cost effective and uh, very efficient manner without wasting resources is is exactly what advocacy and arbitration is all about right interesting uh, i did not know about that fact and thank you so much for sharing it with our audience what are the challenges you face as a lawyer uh, challenges are in terms of time and in terms of availability of resources to deal with a particular kind of situation right so whenever you have a conflict right you have um, not just the legal or the sort of textbook way of resolving that conflict but you can have out of the box situations where you can have uh, like you know a protest for example right like if you look at the current protests that are going on for the farmers in delhi or right. and or the uh, the sports people who are affected by a certain w- whatever was done by that minister right, right. so the wrestlers you mean exactly so they did not get justice right they did not get justice at the outset Absolutely. but they had to go there and they had to protest right. but what happened as a result of the protest was that they were heard and they did receive some sort of fair outcome i would say in terms of the fact that the investigation is going on right so at least the investigation took place something happened right yeah. it moved forward right that would not have happened had they just sat down and said okay you know we have this has happened to us and we have sit at home and just uh you know went out your frustration on your family members that's right. just not that's not going to happen so you need to do something you need to act in order to resolve a conflict true right when there is a conflict managing that conflict getting a good outcome in a cost effective manner that is exactly what arbitration is all about interesting yes that's something which i really never knew about and thank you for putting the insights on that topic If you would like to go back and fix a mistake you made as a lawyer what would it be and why You know Nirali I think that fixing a mistake that has already been committed is sort of like an act which is really useless Right What is really important about mistakes is to learn from them True. and to improve yourself so you don't make those mistakes again Right But obviously I've made many mistakes in my life and everyone makes mistakes that's an essential quality Absolutely. of what makes us human True So definitely you know as a lawyer in the as you're sort of growing and you get experience you would have definitely made many mistakes in many cases and those small small mistakes may or may not have led to any significant sort of changes in outcome in relation to the clients but you would like to strive to minimize those mistakes as you go forward you collaborate with other lawyers you ask people questions if you don't understand right. something and there's no shame in that no one is 
no no single lawyer can possibly know everything that there is to know about the law like that's why we have books where we read them and we have you know westlaw and lexis and you know several resources like in india you have manupatra you know you have several resources to read and get knowledge about something that you don't understand and you improve yourself and you try not to make that mistake again and hopefully the judge doesn't catch on to that right and if if you if the judge does catch on to that then the best thing to do is to apologize and say i'm sorry you know this is my mistake and i'm i'm not going to do that again and you know apologize to your client and try your best to make the situation whole interesting yes you specialize in arbitration law can you share your micro niche on this segment of law with our audience sure so you know arbitration law is basically dispute resolution outside court like you know traditionally uh, you know so to speak you have several types of disputes you have criminal disputes you have marriage you have you know income tax disputes you have sales tax disputes gst disputes you have disputes in several different tribunals across the country but the quickest and the fastest way to resolve a dispute is through arbitration right and what arbitration means is basically having a court outside court so you appoint someone called an arbitrator okay. who acts as a judge and he resolves your case as if you are in court right. and the resolution that the arbitrator provides would be binding as if it is a judgment from a court so then you can use the court system after you have engaged in arbitration to enforce the award of the arbitrator right like suppose for example if the arbitrator says that you know someone has to pay you x amount of rupees then you can go to court and attach that person's property to recover x amount of rupees so you right. can use the infrastructure of the court to enforce arbitral awards so the arbitrator gives you something which is called an award and that is his decision it's like a judgment from a court right and that would be enforceable through the courts so that's very efficient because like just to give you an example in any day in any court in india you would have more than one case right like if you go you stand outside the court you will see that there are probably 50 or 100 or 200 cases that are listed and one case comes up then the judge goes to the next one the third one the fourth one so on right the flow just continues it just goes throughout the day there would be like maybe 100 200 cases that one judge has dealt with but as far as arbitration is concerned right you're the only person that there is Right. So the judge or the arbitrator, he gets your full attention, right? And you get his full attention. So it's it's a more uh, consultative, detailed sort of approach where the technical rules of evidence and the rules of civil procedure don't apply. Right. So you have a, a very uh, sort of informal way in which a particular dispute is heard by someone who you select. as a judge right right so that's that's another feature of arbitration where you know when you go to court you don't get to decide who the judge would be but if you go for arbitration you get to decide right before you have a dispute you get to decide that look if i have a dispute with you this guy is going to be the judge and he's going to decide who's right and then if he decides that someone is right that would be enforced by the court it would be recognized legally 
to be able to get your money back right, right. so that's the biggest advantage right. who appoints the uh, arbitrators so there's two options right either or three options actually either the parties appoint the arbitrator directly yes so you know you would have a typical situation would be you would have a contract before you do a particular business deal or an investment or whatever you are doing in business with that person right and that contract will say that this contract is subject to arbitration okay right you just need one simple line in there which says this contract is subject to arbitration and after that everything follows from there so if you want to name the arbitrator in the contract itself you can do that so you can say this contract is subject to arbitration all disputes shall be resolved by mr abc or mr xyz as the arbitrator right okay. so if that is the case then you have to go to that person when there is a dispute and you selected him before when you signed the contract so he will decide the dispute and then if the other party refuses to comply with that then you can go for enforcement proceedings or attachment and so on right how does arbitration happen in india so in india there's uh, like many different types of arbitration the first type i would say would be arbitration which happens between two indians right right where you have one indian who's a plaintiff and one indian who's a uh, defendant okay. that is typically uh, called domestic arbitration right? right but if you have one party who's a foreigner and one party who's an indian then that would be called international arbitration okay so either you have domestic arbitration or you have international arbitration the rules for domestic arbitration and international arbitration are very different right right so uh, as far as domestic arbitration is concerned it happens pretty much all the time in india right like you have uh, typical scenarios where you have domestic arbitration would be in government contracts right where you have these infrastructure contracts like for example there was a major arbitration award that recently one of uh, anil ambani's companies uh, won against uh, a roadway project so you know you have um, several sort of domestic contracts right for example uh, pretty much any contract that relates to purchase and and sale of securities on a stock exchange is subjected to arbitration right so if you are dealing with a, a stock broker then you do, you can't really go to court for that you have to go for arbitration and like you know many other contracts which are sort of standard form contracts like uh, for example when you purchase a domain name right if someone says that i have an intellectual property in that domain name right. that would that dispute would be subjected to arbitration so uh, you know you can definitely even when there is arbitration you can go to the court for interim relief which is sort of basically like saying that you know you're telling the court that till the time that this arbitration is going on i need a certain amount of relief which I, which would make my dispute really useless if i don't get that relief so right. give me that relief till the time the arbitration subject to the outcome of the arbitration so you can do that right but mainly the arbitrator gets to decide the dispute that is uh, in question interesting i mean this is very very interesting for the audience because there's so much happening in bombay so many disputes happening in bombay and i'm sure that this knowledge is going to be helpful for every indian there has been a lot of freedom related uh, issues and queries on the same sex marriage in india 
post the pandemic. What is the current situation of the same-sex marriage in India? So currently the issue is pending before the Supreme Court and okay. the whole country is really watching with bated breath what the Supreme Court is going to decide. Right. Uh, several arguments have been put forth before the Supreme Court and the question really that arises in the case of same-sex marriage is who decides? Who decides whether same-sex marriage should be legal or it should not be legal, right? The government of India has argued before the Supreme Court that it should not be the Supreme Court who decides whether same-sex marriage would be legal or not. It should be the people of India who should decide right. and express their opinion through their ballot papers and consequently elect members of parliament who would have that view and then the members of parliament would introduce a bill in parliament to legalize same-sex marriage. Okay. That should be the route that should be followed in order to legalize same-sex marriage. Right. That is what the government is contending in uh, the Supreme Court right now. But what the other side is contending, the people who want legalization of same-sex marriage, basically they're of the view that, you know, the government is never going to follow through and uh, legalize same-sex marriage even if the people vote for it or they have a view that the rights of people are superior to what other people would say. Well, that's a so, sort of controversial view. Right. It kind of assumes that people don't know what they want or people would not be able to articulate what they want. Right. So this this is a it's it's a global sort of issue where many other countries have taken different routes to legalize same-sex marriage. Right. But what really works for India is the question. So as far as India is concerned, I feel that the route that should be followed should be one of asking the people what they want and putting the question to the people on the ballot box right. and let the people decide whether same-sex marriage should be legal right. or whether same-sex marriage should not be legal. That again, you know, this is a very sort of narrow question because the Supreme Court has already held that live-in relationships and so on right. are subject to the same rules as far as domestic violence and criminal matters arising from those uh, relationships arise. Like, you know, if a same-sex couple is residing together, but they're not married technically, right. and there's a question of harassment or, you know, domestic violence, then, you know, obviously that person has a remedy. True. And that's what the Supreme Court has said. But that doesn't equate to, re to recognizing the same-sex union as a marriage. Because there are several other benefits that are attached to being married. And that question is currently the one which remains before the Supreme Court right now. And this is before a constitutional bench. So it's a relatively uh, important and a very uh, sort of live issue, I would say. Right. When do you think that the government is going to take a decision on this matter? So it should be it should be coming out soon. I feel maybe uh, in a couple of months because the matter has already been argued before the Supreme Court. True. And uh, maybe I would say it should be anytime soon that the Supreme Court would pronounce whether the Supreme Court is going to agree with the government or the Supreme Court is going to itself recognize 
same sex marriage the supreme court has the obviously has the authority to do that right and the supreme court may do that if if the if the court feels that it's a question of human rights or fundamental rights that's involved true you know in particular article 21 right to life so maybe the supreme court recognizes it maybe it doesn't we don't know yet if it does sure good that's great but you know it should be ideally going through parliament amazing this insightful again have you ever worked on a case that was hard to take back home and how did you handle the situation well there have been many cases that i have worked on which is which were hard to take back home initially and you have to sort of separate your professional and your personal life true and you you just cannot let it seep into one and the other right right you you cannot be a more vindictive uh, son or husband or boyfriend rather just because you do disputes every day and you should not let your disputes seep into your personal life either right so it's very important to keep both separate right you know like initially before i was doing purely arbitration work i used to do a small amount of other disputes as well and definitely there was one case where there was custody of a child that was involved which really uh, sort of hit home for me in uh, in that sense but you know after that i've sort of moved on to purely commercial disputes and disputes between businesses purely that relate to who owes how much money to which person right. and that's just like basically comes down to how much money is involved and who wins that and who doesn't win it so that's an easier sort of job i would say right. rather than doing the more emotional cases which are like family law related or criminal law related and i try to avoid that now yeah, makes sense what has been your work life balance as a lawyer well the as a lawyer you know i i i don't know if it would be very good for me to say that but i work pretty much 24/7 right because all my clients require immediate attention right whenever there's a dispute you know your thinking is such that you want someone to help you right now right you need someone to be there for you at that moment right right and you need immediate attention right, right? so keeping the client happy and getting the best outcome for my client is always what i want so i try to be there for my client as as and when i can and which really pretty much means that you have to be available 24/7 yeah. that's the one reason i call you very highly skilled and outstanding lawyer thank you tell me about the greatest triumph of your career so far and how you made it happen So I have had uh, several cases where money was owed outside of India and there are some countries where it's very difficult to recover money like for example african countries or, or eastern countries like uh, for example thailand and you know to name south africa and you know some countries like vietnam so those countries are very difficult to do business with right like just put yourself in a in an in the shoes of an exporter or an importer dealing with those countries right like if you have s- supplied goods to them and they don't pay you what are you going to do how how are you going to get your money out mm-hmm. so those sorts of cases where i have done uh, arbitration and i have delivered positive results for my client those are the types of cases which were really really difficult to get outcomes in and that's where i would say that 
I have excelled in getting and my record speaks for itself. True. So like, you know, people call me up and they say, okay, you know, so-and-so told me that you've done a great job in this case. So would you take, like do this for me as well and all. So it, that's just, that that's your validation Absolutely. of the work that you do. And that proves that you're, what you're doing is, is good. Right. So word of mouth has really worked for you. Absolutely. Amazing. What are your thoughts on how AI will change law in general? That's a great question. And you know, recently uh, in the US, there was one lawyer uh, who used AI to draft his entire submissions in court. Chat GPT? Yes. Fascinating. So, so he just put in, uh, he just put in the chat GPT, give me uh, an entire brief for this particular subject. And he submitted that brief in court without making any changes. And he got caught. He got caught. He was uh, caught because everything that was in that brief, right. it was not cited. So he was citing. So, you know, like when you write a brief, you have to say, in this case, this happened accordingly. The follow. Exactly. Right. So in this case, this happened and accordingly, this should happen in my case. Right. Right. So the cases that he had cited were all non-existent. They were all like non-existent cases, which didn't really exist. So he got pulled up as a lawyer. The judge said, what is this? You can't do this. You can't uh, file a submission with non-existent cases. And he's actually now facing ethical charges. He might lose his license for using chat GPT to make submissions in court. But that just shows us like, you know, that just shows that chat GPT is a tool which lawyers are already using True. to make their submissions. But some, is required some, some lawyers go overboard in trying to use Jack GPT, uh, you know, missing the point that it's just a tool which has to yeah. be used rather than just offer the finished product. True. But surely you can use chat GPT to definitely simplify tasks. And I know several lawyers who use the premium version to get the fastest uh, sort of output when they are sitting in court to be able to give on the spot responses. Sure, you can use chat GPT and it's a very great tool and it, it is definitely going to make, you know, some interns and lower level associates jobless, but definitely it has to be tempered with your experience and your knowledge about law. You can't just copy paste that's the True. point absolutely i completely agree with you because chat gpt is taking up a lot of content writers jobs but what content writers can do chat gpt cannot do exactly yeah making india the hub of arbitration law bridging the gap between myth and reality your take mr saita so india is a is a great place for arbitration but as far as India is concerned, arbitration is still in the nascent stages. It's not very, uh, it's not very mature and that's going to take some time because, you know, as a country, as the courts are in India, we always say, look, we are pro arbitration. We want arbitration to work. We want to sort of uh, have more arbitration that's happening in India. But when you go for enforcement, it becomes very difficult and enforcement is still not happening very well so you know it's very great to say that we want to have india as a hub in arbitration but look at the enforcement record right like the enforcement record isn't that great in india 
So you can have great arbitration, but when you are not going to enforce arbitration, that really affects your own record as a country, True. right? And the, the, the prime example of that in India is the government itself. Like there have been so many arbitrations that have taken place where the government is a party, right? Like there are disputes in relation to contractors of governments and international contracts that the government has entered into, right. but the government refuses to uh, comply with those arbitration awards. So that's when sort of arbitration as a landscape in India is very negatively affected when people don't comply with or obey arbitration awards, there have to be consequences. True. What is your take? How would India bridge the gap between myth and reality? So India needs to be more proactive for arbitration to work. There has to be a, there have to be mechanisms in place where people who do not comply with or sort of just ignore arbitration awards right. are dealt with in a professional manner, having consequences. Like, you know, for example, I can say, say, for example, there is a, we have a system in India, which is called Sybil, where someone defaults on a loan, True. They, they get reported to Sybil and, you know, the score, goes down. The, the score goes down. So that same sort of system can be, you know, enforced for arbitration. You have five arbitration awards, which you did not comply. Your uh, score should be hit and people should know that while they are dealing with you that yeah. you don't really follow your own arbitration awards. And if that is the case, they would stop dealing with you going forward. True. That's a great idea, which you share. So in fact. Th that's, that, that's one of the ways in which arbitration can be made more uh, effective and right. more reachable for the common man, because like what happens right now is arbitration is, is also expensive. Right. It's not cheap. So it has to be more accessible. When it becomes more accessible, it will become cheaper because more people will be into arbitration. Right. And when that happens, arbitration will become more successful. True. That's a great idea which you shared with our audience. Thank you. Thank you. To come into the conclusion out here, uh, what is your mantra for the emerging lawyers who want to pursue arbitration law? Detail, detail and detail. You have to be very detail oriented. Right. Gone are the days where you could just say anything and get away with it. You have to know your facts. You have to know your figures. You have to know everything that is in your brief. You have to, you have to be able to talk about your brief without looking at it. And that's when you would be a good lawyer. Amazing. Having the papers in front of you and talking about everything that you have is very easy. Anyone can do that. True. But if you're able to talk with a straight face without looking into your brief and you know everything that you have to say, that's called real preparation and detail oriented preparation where you should be able to narrate off whatever you have to say right from the top of your head. Great. So the emerging lawyers need to understand the preparation and detailed preparation exactly. is what is required Absolutely. to be a successful arbitration lawyer. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mr. Saita, for your insightful knowledge on arbitration My law. My pleasure. Thank you for joining Thank us for at me. the DNS podcast. Thank you.